there was like one small wing that was bluegrassers and no one would go down there unless you were like, it was this deep, dark thing that you don't want to, it's like, you should get into that stuff, kid. And so I remember like the first time I was getting into bluegrass, I kind of had to like sort of hide it from them a little bit. It was like this forbidden thing that I was supposed to keep a secret. Hey, greetings, everyone. Keith Billick here. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Happy September and and happy back to school or cooler weather or whatever September means to you. I talked a couple episodes about how my September was going to be action-packed going to Dell Fest and IBMA and teaching at the Great Lakes Music Camp. And lo and behold, due to the reason that we all know, uh, two of those things have been postponed, so my action-packed September is now looking more action-diluted or something like that. So I'm still going to be at IBMA the last week of this month. I will be exhibiting with uh, my good friend Dan Patrick, who hosts the Mandolins and Beer podcast, and we're going to have an exhibit booth, uh, so come say hi. Uh, I'll be there all week, and if any of you are down in the Raleigh, North Carolina area, Hopefully I will get to run into you in person. So while I am uh, definitely disappointed about the the great interviews that I won't be able to do that I had set up for these other events, it is way beyond my control and I just hope to have uh, better luck next time. Speaking of that though, I am the luckiest podcast host in the world to have such fantastic supporters of the show here. And one such supporter is Jordan Ream. He is the Patreon supporter of the day. He went to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and became a supporter of the show. Jordan's life changed when he saw Sammy Sheeler play at the Romp Festival down in Kentucky. And as fortune would have it, he's now in a band called Kentucky Shine that is performing at this year's Romp Fest. So a real full circle moment. And if my estimations are correct romp is happening any day now so jordan i really hope you hear this before your performance and best of luck to you and your band and thank you so much for supporting the show once again that website is patreon.com slash banjo podcast if you have been enjoying this show please consider going to that website and tossing a dollar or a few dollars per month my way and there are benefits to doing that such as getting to be invited to the monthly video meet and greet with myself and your fellow vip very important picker supporters uh and actually i have an announcement for this month's vip lounge that is going to take place on sunday september 26th at 1 p.m and did i just say sunday like the monster truck announcer guy i think i did but either way i hope to see you all at the vip lounge it's always a ton of fun featured guest is the switch-hitting double-threat banjo player Frank Evans, and I refer to him that way because he is truly one of the best that I've seen in terms of 
playing at a very high level on both three finger as well as claw hammer styles and i hope to feature his abilities on both of those throughout this episode frank is best known as the banjo player for the slow can ramblers a canadian bluegrass band and he just released a duo album with an amazing fiddler named ben plotnik and you'll be hearing a bit of those song clips and hearing him chat about that If you have been listening for several episodes now, you will recall that I did a trip to Nashville a couple months back to get interviews, and I was really lucky that Frank and Ben's CD release show at the Station Inn was during that week, so I was able to attend that and uh, got to enjoy that show and then do the interview with Frank the following day while it was all fresh in my mind. So I got an up-close and personal look at what Frank is able to do, and uh, I think you'll be just as impressed as I was. One last thing before we get started, feel free to contact me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com with any feedback on the show, suggestions, or other comments. But let's get started. Here it is, my interview with Frank Evans. My name is Frank Evans, and I'm from Toronto, Ontario. Not Toronto, but Toronto. And I first got into the banjo when I was about nine or ten years old. My both my parents are classical musicians, so I grew up with people, you know, sort of practicing in the house all the time. And they sort of steered me towards music quite early. I started playing piano um, when I was maybe, or actually, I started playing flute when I was about four, and then piano a little bit later. And Whoa. nothing really took. I had some great teachers, but yeah, it just didn't really seem to fit. And then I went to a concert called the Banjo Special that happens every year in Toronto. And it's um, this concert where they play all these different styles of banjo. So there's mm-hmm. an Irish tenor banjo player and there's a couple claw hammer players and a uh, bluegrass banjo player. And I just really gravitated towards the claw hammer style. And there was a guy playing there named Chris Cool who was uh, actually, I mean, he was also the, the style that really kind of it struck me but he was also kind of the first in line that I was able to talk to so it was this weird sort of you know weird circumstance and, and I talked to him and he gave lessons and he was teaching me for a while and um, and he lives there too he lives in Toronto yeah exactly and so then he eventually told me to go down to Clifftop uh, which is the old time sort of yeah. fiddlers convention it's sort of the big one it happens in West Virginia every year in August and uh, that was only about a year after taking lessons with him. Uh-huh. And so the first year, actually, my my parents took me down. Remind um, me how old you are when all this is happening? So I would have been 10 okay. at this point, or 10 or 11, yeah. And uh, they they just thought it would be a fun sort of vacation. And so I, I went down there. And it was amazing because we you, this festival is like, for those of you who've never been to this festival, it's big in, you know, old-time Fiddler's Convention standards, right. you know, m- multiple thousands of people. Yeah. And it's in a fairly small campground, so it's it's pretty condensed, you know. And so everyone's tent is only a matter of inches away from each other. And so we got there, and it's a bit overwhelming. And then uh, you, there was the possibility that I might not even see Chris when I was there, because that is totally, a, you know, you can go there and meet an entirely new community every time you go and, yeah. and not see the old one that you you met the previous year. Uh, but it just so happened that right at the very sort of bottom of the hill where we were doing our final loop, uh, we ran into them. And so we got to spend the whole week with Chris and he sort of uh, 
he would shepherd me around and uh-huh. and take me to all these jams that I think if I was just on my own, I would have never found myself in. But Now, were you capable enough at that point to actually participate in those jams or what was mm, going on? Yeah, I mean, yes, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't um, an amazing pandra player. I could, right. I could follow along, nothing special, but I think, you know, people... Often, you know, if they see someone who's that age and they're really into the banjo, you know, you get a few extra points or whatever. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I was able to play in some jams and I think just the, I hadn't played in that sort of setting before, like in the full string band instrumentation setting before. Mm -hmm. So that's like a whole other experience where you get to hear the bass and the guitar and, and then like, you know, some amazing fiddle players and, and you get that whole sonic experience. It's, uh, that's kind of a game changer too. Then you're like, oh this is this is how it's supposed to feel when you Yeah, play. even when you go back and p- practice on your own, you have that in your mind of what you're working towards so that you can be a part of this really fun thing that you Absolutely, remember. yeah. And especially those fillers conventions, I, I, we were just talking about this with someone else and that there's like this sort of magical energy that happens when you're at those things. And I feel like the whole year is spent chasing that dragon of like how to how to make it feel like you're you know sleep deprived and in the middle of a dusty <laughs> road playing whatever your favorite fiddle tune is um and there's just really no way to replicate it so i i guess i sort of like got the uh the best you know experience of what the music is supposed to feel like quite early on i feel like i've gotten pretty good at replicating the sleep deprivation right. part yeah, i'm, yeah, I'm yeah. good at that maybe maybe yeah, any yeah. musical talent not quite as much <laughs> The but bad odors, I, you know. I can give you some tips on the <laughs> sleep deprivation. Bad odors, right? Yeah, just don't take a shower for a while. <laughs> Stay up for 72 hours. Yeah. You're good. Awesome. So you were pretty strictly claw hammer at that point, right? Yeah. I mean, I was aware of bluegrass and, um, like, there was, a, you know, when you, when you play an instrument like the banjo, I feel like everyone who has any connection to the banjo is sort of like always being like, oh, you know, I have this CD kicking around my house. Like, well, you should take it. You're the one yeah. banjo player I know. So I had a bunch of like people who'd give me some bluegrass records and stuff like that. So I was aware of kind of other styles of banjo, but I was really quite into old time at, at the moment. Um, who were some players that, I mean, obviously Chris must have been a, a huge influence on you, but did I know there are, and you're going to probably have to like hold my hand a bit because I, I know mostly three finger style. So the claw hammer stuff, you'll have to educate me a bit too, but I know there are different styles and regional ways of playing claw hammer. Was, were you exploring that stuff too? Or what, which ones influenced you? Do you think? I, yeah, I, you know, I wasn't really into, I wasn't really knowledgeable about like regional styles of playing at that point. I was just kind of, um, playing whatever style sort of I, I, I gravitated towards. And of course, Chris was a huge influence. I loved his style of playing. His style was like really clean. He uses his sort of setup on the banjo is, is pretty much the same setup I still use today. And it's like really high action and really heavy gauge strings and get a very sort of deep uh, yeah. bell-like tone on every string. And, you know, as little pick noise as possible. And, and it's really hard to get that sort of chuck you can get in sort of the round peak style. So that actually, I might be skipping ahead because I was going to ask about this um, the fact that you have really high action might answer it I see that you play quite often over the fingerboard which yeah. made me a little surprised that you don't have a scooped fingerboard because it seems like that would be so convenient for you but is that part of the reason is that your high action makes it so that you don't really need it as much or yeah, what's, what's I mean, the deal with that yeah that's definitely the and I mean I think it's similar in a lot of instruments where you just the higher the action for whatever reason it sort of darkens the instrument a little bit um, and yes, it's it's mostly just sort of a comfort thing. And, and when you play over the neck, I'll just give an, a quick example. Yeah. 
Um, you know, if you were to play over the bridge, and I also I use a metal finger pick on um, just sort of to replicate a regular fingernail. Um, yeah. A lot of band, you know, Klawhammer banjo players have long fingernails, and that helps. But if you're playing bluegrass as well, then it kind of the long fingernails can kind of get in the way of the bluegrass picks. So I use a, a, a metal pick backwards, and I just find that over the head of the instrument, it's just kind of a little brash, or it's just little tinny um so you can kind of get away with some of the darker tones over the over the neck um and then having the high action means that you're not really constantly hitting that fretboard yeah that's what's impressive about it especially with the pick it seems like it, it's a recipe for maybe a lot of yeah fret pick collisions yes and, and you be... do get it on the like on the first string sometimes. And I try, you know, I work to try and not have it, but when you're really, if you're having to play loudly or something like that, it comes out. So yeah, that was that was kind of the style that really, um, I was, you know, mostly replicating at that time just because Chris was sort of my teacher. And, and I, you know, obviously I still love that style. Um, there was a couple other players that uh, I really loved you know he would give me some some examples of people but like kyle creed was always one of my favorite mm -hmm. banjo players just his tone is amazing and like uh -huh. the the way that he plays those galax roles are just like no one is kind of untouchable you know so what is a galax role uh the, galax this is, role. How, this is how right elementary i am with, oh with no all this stuff um i mean galax role coming from galax virginia I'm I'm really not any uh, anyone to talk to about the the history of this stuff. I just know it as you know sort of a technique based thing. But it's 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 a very specific type of roll where you kind of brush through the strings and there's often like a slide or a hammer on associated with it. Okay. One of the sort of famous uh, versions of it is Fred Cockerham playing this um, song called Hop High My Lulu Gal, or he calls it, calls it Rostabout, and you may have heard it. Um, You have this, and it's really interesting because it's not, it's really um, cool. yeah. yeah, it's not like a triplet, it's not, you know, it's kind of this nebulous rhythm that they have that, um, it, it just kind of fits in right before the bar. It's almost, it reminds me a lot of like uh, Django style playing where they have these like brushed downstrokes, and they're not really, again, they're not like in this super subdivided rhythm, it's just kind of like this really amazing way of adding tension before that. Uh, the downbeat of the yeah. note, you know? And so it it's has like a smeared on. attack more than a, yeah, right, a, yeah. a precise rhythm. Yeah, yeah, or like, you know, like a rock guitar player has often, you know, like, <laughs> you know, that was a terrible <laughs> example, but there's often like these sort of muted brush strokes that are like, yeah. and it really adds this tension before the, the that note. A lot of people, I think, you know, associate it also with um, sometimes picking up in the fifth string afterwards, so it's like... That kind of is okay. very specific to the, the Galax role. So there might be even like more strict definitions of what it is. That sort of thing. So yeah. it's a little bit out of tune. So yeah, I mean, Kyle Creed was, you know, he, he does that amazingly. Um, also, funny enough, uh, when I was first getting into banjo, 
my brother went to like the blockbuster CD store in Toronto called HMV and uh, was looking for something banjo related because he knew I was kind of getting interested and I was about to start taking lessons. And this was, again, when I was nine or 10 or something like that. He's an older brother. He's an older brother. Yeah. And neither of us knew anything about this music. And he just went to the used folk section at, Uh you know, at HMV, which you would never (laughs) expect to find anything kind of... um, slightly off the beaten path and uh, he picked this album by this band player named Walt Koken uh-huh. um, who's like still one of my favorite banjo players and yeah. it was his solo record called Banjo Neek and it's it was a just I have no idea how it ended up there it was a brand new copy you know hadn't been opened it wasn't like yeah. So it just ended up And it was the somehow. one your brother chose. It was the one that like, had a picture took, of the banjo on the front. Like it took two miracles yeah, to happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. And it literally, I, I wore that CD out. You know, it was it was just it was the soundtrack for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And he does these amazing things. Like, he's um, quite influential. And he does these, you know, there's a big part of playing Climber is these left-hand pull-offs. Which is kind of unique to it, where, you, you know, you're not actually, it's not associated with the right hand. It's just independent of the right hand. You just, you know... And you can mm-hmm. do it with fretted um, notes as well. So, I mean, one of the tricky things about Clawhammer is that um, be- just due to the, the shape of your right hand and how you're playing, it's really hard to get ascending intervals as opposed to descending intervals. Um, oh, right. Because the only way to sort of subdivide <laughs> notes is for your thumb to drop down. You can have... But to go back up is is actually kind of tricky. You, I mean, some people do these you sort of cross yourself up, or yeah, yeah. Whereas, I mean, it gets a little tricky with bluegrass too. But um, it's even more difficult with claw hammer. So there's these left hand pull offs. And Walt Koken was amazing. He would do these kind of. Um, I still can't calls. even tell exactly what you're doing. It's a pull off, but the note is going up. Yeah. That so make like, sense. if 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 you if I were to just plant my finger on the fifth fret. And then I would just use that as my marker and pull off. And you can pull off from anywhere above that, but you get the note. Oh. And that way, you you know, if I was going to ascend, if I wanted to go, as opposed to. I get it. Okay. That sort of thing. So it, it is a little bit of, you know, like rubbing your stomach and patting your head at the same time. It, yeah. it kind of gets a little confusing because you have to think two frets above where you're, where you're actually, mm-hmm. the, the target note is. Um, sorry if I'm totally uh, losing everyone here, but um, yeah. So your 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 right hand is plucking, say, the B string, depending yeah. on what what tuning you're in. But then you have also a note that you're playing on the high D string, but it's played by just a pull off, just but yeah, a pull exactly. off without having the string being attacked with your right hand. Yeah, it's just so it's completely, completely independent. independent of the right. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's almost like a two-hand tapping variation or so, a little bit like that. Same yeah. concept. Yeah. Oh. And so, you know, um, Walt Koch is amazing. Also, one of the the sort of uh, people who's perfected it is Adam Hurt. Like, he's amazing. And, oh, yeah. And he's worked really hard on um, making sure that it doesn't sound like a pull-off, that it just sounds, you know, the, the volume of everything is very consistent. So it's just mm. this really beautiful legato, no, you know, phrase that he'll be playing as opposed to kind of like a... This yeah. you know, obvious lick that you're trying to pull off, but but yeah, so just a couple of people that I uh, have been really influential over the years. So did you? I, I take it you eventually got to the point where you were participating a bit more in the clifftop style picking sessions, or maybe you were able to find something closer to you to be involved in. Hopefully, um, how, well, how did that all? A play little out? bit older. I you know I, I went down to clifftop for 
I think I went maybe 10 years in a row. Uh Like I was really hooked on it. It was this sort of, it was, it was like my, everything I looked forward to, which is funny as a, (laughs) you know, whatever, 14, 15 year old. I was so into it. When I was in grade eight, there was a, a project that you had to do that was like, you'd spent the whole year trying to put together a project on whatever you wanted to do, but it had to be the sort of sort of big culminating project of your middle school. And so the project that I picked was uh, I, I made a graphic novel on Eden Hammonds, who's like a West Virginian fiddle player. So I was like really deep into it at that point. <laughs> so he's a literal superhero now with his own <laughs> exactly. comic book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I was really into it. And there were there was definitely a scene in Toronto to play. It wasn't quite as vibrant and maybe it's just because being at those fillers conventions it's something magical about it and never going to be the same but it was also like you know going down there there was maybe more people my own age who were playing it and okay. uh, so that was kind of fun yeah. and I did a bit of the competitions which were really fun I did like mm. I got second in there and I won a couple of the like youth ones and stuff like that yeah. so that was like that was awesome. my uh, my happy place for sure <laughs> yeah that's cool so when when along this way did you start to consider playing bluegrass style um, or is that skipping ahead too much? No, no, not at all. I, I, um, I met up with these guys. So I was, you know, it's honestly, I think sort of trying to play, uh, with people closer to my age. I think, you know, I wasn't sub- actually look seeking that out, but I think looking back on it, I would have o- very openly appreciated that. And so I, I ran into a friend of mine who, uh, I was working with at the time, and he was he was going through music school. There's a jazz college in Toronto called Humber College, and uh, he was a bass player there. And he was playing with these other th- three guys who were just getting into acoustic music, and they they were all jazz people. But they, after finding out about Tony Rice and and Norman Blake, they quickly found each other because they were like the only ones in the college who who were into that stuff. Um, and they were playing together, and so my friend um, knew I played the banjo. And so he said, you should come play some tunes with us. And I got there and it was very clearly like it was bluegrass is what these guys were into. And I didn't have any problem with that. I just didn't really know the repertoire. Uh, so I think like week two, like we sort of set up regular jams or something like that. And week two, I just went to the store and bought a, a gold tone bluegrass banjo because it was kind of like, this is clearly, I mean, this is the way to, to play this music. That's it's, where your opportunity is. So yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's worth it to invest yourself in that. Yeah. And, I, and you know, when you listen to that kind of music, you just... It doesn't really fit unless you have the bluegrass banjo. Like you can you can play those songs, you can get by, but it was like I was hearing this music and I really wanted to make it sound like that. So there okay. was like really one path to take. So you're getting into that music too then. Was it the same stuff as these guys were listening to? The Tony Rice recordings? Or? It was pretty modern stuff. It was kind of funny because I went from like from the old time stuff thinking about it when I was listening to old time and playing old time. I was listening to mostly like sort of archive recordings and, and older stuff. I wasn't really listening to contemporary old time bands really. Okay. Um, and I think I I dove into the other side of bluegrass. Like I was like, oh my God, you know, uh, improvisation is the thing. Like you can, yeah. you can, you don't have to follow this exact recording and, and you know, play exactly this Galax role in this particular moment. So I think, I, yeah, I dove into the other side of stuff and I got really into Bella Fleck and I got really into Tony Rice recordings and loved all these Ricky Skaggs instrumental records and stuff. And how fast were you, or how quickly were you able to pick that up going from Clawhammer? Was that a, a relatively easy transition for you? I, you know, it was, I mean, it's different than starting from scratch. And I think in my Clawhammer playing, I had tried to sort of experiment with the fretboard a little bit more. Um, so I had some basis of it. I also like got really into it. Like it was one of those things. I think a lot of 
people who kind of have this moment in their musical career or whatever. But it was like, that was the moment when I was like, oh yeah, I think I can play like six hours a day. No problem. Like, that's, <laughs> that's not an issue. Whereas now, you know, I, I, I struggle to, to try and find that kind of concentration, but it was like, it was just not a problem. I had to like, you know, fend off <laughs> people who were saying like, you shouldn't be doing this. Like you're going to get arthritis or <laughs> whatever. Now, were you still balancing your time between the two styles or did you kind of dive into that without looking back necessarily. I kind of dropped the claw hammer. I think I yeah. just fully went for the bluegrass stuff. Um, it's also, it's so hard. Like you, that stuff, I got really into like melodic, as I was saying, the sort of single string things like right away. And with that stuff, like unless you stay on top of it, it, it you can't really pull it off, mm -hmm. you know? And these guys were kind of starting to book gigs and like there was like sort of performance tempos that things were expected to be played at. And so like, unless I really put all my time towards that it was not i was not gonna be able to pull it off man some of us can't pull that stuff off even <laughs> regardless <laughs> of how much time we might try to put into it folks we are in a golden age of online instrument instruction and at the top of that world is peghead nation peghead nation has streaming video courses in banjo guitar mandolin fiddle dobro upright bass and ukulele so you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots Music. Check out the courses they have, and this is just for banjo. You could get beginning or bluegrass banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. Each of those courses include high-quality video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And the best thing yet is you're going to get your first month free just by being a listener of this show. So go to pegheadnation.com and use promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout and claim your free month of the best instruction out there. And if you find yourself needing a banjo or accessories, to get ready for those Peghead Nation courses, I highly recommend you check out Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source of new used and vintage stringed instruments, including banjos, guitars, violins, mandolins, ukuleles, all that stuff. They're going to have the best instruments you can find anywhere. And we're talking everything from the more affordable instruments for people starting out on up through the most highly sought after vintage instruments. Elderly Instruments has been family owned since 1972. And if you can't make it to their Lansing, Michigan showroom, you can see their full selection at elderly.com or give them a call at 517-372-7880 for some professional advice on all of your banjo and other stringed instrument needs. And you know what all these stringed instruments have in common? they all sound better with GHS Strings. GHS Strings is another sponsor of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, and I'm proud to say they have been made in Battle Creek, Michigan since 1974. And if you don't want to take my word for it, maybe you'll believe such people as J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and Bela Fleck, just a few of the many, many users of GHS Strings. So go check them out, ghsstrings.com. They have a wide selection of gauged sets so that no matter what you're looking for, you'll be able to find something there. So I, I've noticed with your, your claw hammer playing that you do have a very 
melodic style of claw hammer. You like doing up the neck things. You like doing precise fiddle type of patterns. Right. Um, I imagine not hearing you say that, that that might have actually been influenced backwards from you having learned bluegrass and then applying maybe some of those concepts. Yeah, it was exactly that. Like I dropped the claw hammer for a little bit. We played, it was kind of funny, you know, I started playing with these guys and all of a sudden these gigs started rolling in. We were playing like, you know, I don't know, 15, 13, 15 weddings in a summer. And like, Whoa. we just had like all these gigs that people just seemed to want bluegrass that for whatever reason, that, that particular time that we started playing together so we were like we were actually like working really hard they're all kind of crummy gigs but like there was it was like oh my god you can actually you know make some money doing this um we were all packing into a, a tacoma that was like a two-door tacoma and driving trucks. like six hours to play a gig in montreal <laughs> and sleeping in the back of it and um but so uh, glamorous i know yeah it's not that much more glamorous now but uh <laughs> We so yeah then I when I when we started to make a record after playing these gigs we were like oh we should make a CD and that's when I thought you know maybe I could bring some of the old time stuff back into it and when I started practicing the claw hammer again mm-hmm. there was like this vocabulary that was kind of already there just sort of naturally fit and there was a couple of things I remember like working up Bill Keith's um, he has this kind of famous I mean there's a lot of famous Bill Keith melodic Crazy Creek mm-hmm. on the on the claw hammer and a couple exercises oh. like that you know where you're trying to get it note for note so. You're one of the few people who tend to have like a really high level of both styles. So maybe talk like you just gave one example of how your bluegrass style playing maybe influenced your old time playing. Are there any more crossover influences that you that you are able to identify between working having worked on both of those so hard? Or what do you see as the balance yeah. there? Like I mean I I now it's definitely this equal I try very much to try and you know, treat each one with, you know, a lot of time and, you know, not put one down for too long. Um, there's definitely, I think, the Clawhammer has been more influenced by the bluegrass playing than mm-hmm. vice versa. But there are some things about the bluegrass playing that's like um, some sort of two-finger style stuff that I, I like the sound of. Okay. Um, that is probably a little more old-timey sounding than a lot of bluegrass players, you know, um, also just like arrangement styles, you know, the band I play with the slow can ramblers, a lot of the time we'll just play it sort of in an old timey way where no one's taking solos or if they do take a solo, it's not really like free game to do whatever you want. It's very kind of stick to the melody base. And we just seem to like that sound. And so there is, there's like maybe overarching old time influences in the bluegrass, but not necessarily as like a specific role pattern. Playing or thing. Like or yeah. So the Slow Ken Ramblers, is that this group of friends that you were just describing yeah. that started playing and traveling around in the Tacoma? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it was, it was really, it snowballed very quickly. It was, uh, it was, we started playing together for fun. And then I think it was like someone asked us to play their like cocktail wedding of a, a cocktail hour of, a, of their wedding. And, we got a gig and then like that, someone saw us at the wedding and then they asked us for it. And then we had like a full summer of weddings ahead of us. Yeah. And we started playing a weekly gig at a, at a really dive bar in Toronto called the Cloak and Dagger, which we always okay. were joking that like everyone who goes there uh, called it the, the Puke and Stagger. And uh, <laughs> it was like, it, it fit that description very accurately. But it was like also one of those things where people were like yelling and, you know, 
throwing shot glasses. It was like so rowdy and like you yeah. had to really just power through. And it was, it was almost like kind of like a boot camp for a bluegrass band. Like you just got to like power through this stuff and play loud enough that people can hear you. Uh-huh. And we just did the single mic thing. So probably no one could actually hear us in general. But, you know, it was like good practice to play as a bluegrass band. Good boot camp. It was, yeah. That's cool. So, so after that, then we kind of, I think uh, someone had a connection to a festival in, in British Columbia. So the concept of like, touring nationally was then on the table which uh-huh. none of us again none of us had really played in a group that had done that before like a bunch mm-hmm. of like the guitar player was teaching full-time teaching guitar lessons and we we're all playing in other groups and stuff like that but then all of a sudden this sort of tour was on the on put on the table and we're like oh maybe we can turn this into something a little more full-time and then it just really kind of snowballed and started doing our first u.s dates and then it kind of it's been like a full-time job for the past i don't know eight years or so I dreamed of you as clear as day But just dreams come and go Your love and memory fade If I should never find you Inside life, you'd know My heart will be with the seasons come and seasons go I would swim the ocean I would cross the seas to burn I would cross this land of glory Just to know I'm in your heart Back to your process of learning the bluegrass banjo, you, meant, you mentioned that you went for the progressive guys. Right. Uh, tell me a few of like who your main influences were, and then also beyond that, when did you see maybe your own style start to develop and emerge out of all this? Well, so the first first CDs I got were probably Bella Fleck, Alison Krauss, I'm trying to think of some like really contemporary stuff. And that was just because, you know, I was playing in this, this band and I was like, okay, I got to go to the CD store. I got to brush up on some homework. Yeah. And this is all they had was like, it was this <laughs> stuff. It was, I think it was actually perpetual motion, which is Bella Flex's like, oh, classical wow. album. Right. So it's like not even, you know, that applicable to what we were doing, but it was, you know, it was better than the sort of archive recordings I had at home of like you know, Fred Cockerham and stuff. Um, Your so, parents must have been strangely proud when... Did they, did they ever hear you listening to Perpetual Motion? They, and you know, they did. Recognize some of that stuff? It was funny. The other, like, the, the other funny thing about that was that, like, they, you know, there's this, uh, at that time, I feel like it's more acceptable to do both styles now, but, like, at that time, it was very much like at these fiddlers' conventions, there was, like, no bluegrass, you know? There was a couple, I mean, there's a couple that are famous, like, Galax Fiddlers' Convention has always had both, but, like, Clifftop, there was, like, one small wing that was, that, like, time. they shoved yeah. out that was, like, bluegrassers, and okay. no one would go down there unless you were, like, <laughs> it was this deep, dark thing that you don't want to, it's, like, you shouldn't get into that stuff, kid. So then, and then my parents were, like, friends after going to this festival a couple of times. We were friends with all these old-time people, and, and so I remember, like, the first time I was getting into bluegrass, I kind of had to, like sort of hide it from them a little bit because they were like <laughs> very much not indoctrinated but they were on the old time page along with me and so yeah. it was like this, this sort of forbidden thing and I was supposed to keep a secret but event, yeah, you know, eventually I was playing gigs with this band so couldn't keep it a secret too long but um, yeah so it was, it was you know Bella Fleck and 
I'm trying to think of who other, I mean, like a Bill Keith, basically melodic single string uh-huh. players. The Punch Brothers came to town and I remember seeing them for the first time, not even knowing who they were. And I went to the show and was completely blown away. Oh, and, yeah. 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 So, yeah, I had no idea who Noam Kilney was. And then it was like, oh. So how'd you make it there? Someone recommended or? Yeah, someone just said there was a a show in town that like there was a banjo player playing at and I got a ticket and I got like one of the last tickets. It was sold out at this like rock club that I had, you know, I had never seen a bluegrass band there before and it was was very wild, very eye-opening though, yeah. And then when did you start to notice like your own style maybe emerge or or, uh, what would you say are some elements of of your personal style? It's a tough question. I don't want to like be overly modest or something. I don't know. Like I just, the bluegrass stuff is still feels new to me. And so I feel Hmm. like, I mean, to claim that I have my own bluegrass style is maybe I'm not quite comfortable putting that out there. I don't know. I feel like I'm still a student at it very much. So well, let let me phrase it this way. Like what are some things that you maybe discovered on banjo or some techniques or tools you use that you feel have really helped your playing or were like important discoveries and and being able to to do what you do you know i think i remember going to a workshop actually at one of these festivals and hearing noel mckillney talk about this this sort of concept where he was saying you know the just to really overgeneralize but in terms of the bluegrass like if you wanted to call it like scrug style um melodic style and single string if you wanted to like break it down into those concepts obviously that's like brushing over a lot of different uh, styles you know if you were to break it down those styles a lot of players like if you were to play a record and drop the needle like you'd kind of be able to tell what style they're playing yeah. at any given point in time so so his whole goal was uh to like be able to drop the needle and not really know what was going on like it was some some sort of magical blend of all three of those in his own playing. in his own saying. playing and i remember okay. taking that in and being like yes that's i think exactly the sound i would love to be not okay. claiming to be like i can play like no McKinley, but i think that sort of or you know using that concept for other things like you know the two finger style like Omer Forster Forster is like an amazing two finger banjo player one of my favorite banjo players and he has this this record called Flowery Girls and it's just like really kind of syncopated way of playing the melody and so sometimes I maybe that's something that I try and like you know add in there if it's like it just sounds syncopated and it might be single string or it might be kind of just a, a left hand pull offy kind of thing but right. um, hopefully it just is part of the melody at that point familiar with that person is is he like a a, cur- a modern player no, or no I, I he's not alive anymore he's a i'm not really actually even sure where he's from i just know he has this sort of famous album called flowery girls that okay. i was given a while ago and um it's it's again it's two finger style but a lot of it has this um these kind of like left hand pull-offs which make it syncopated That's not really the best example of it, but um, that kind of thing where it's like all of a sudden, even though you're picking the banjo, it still sounds kind of old-timey in a way, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, if we're going to play something like, you know, the Slocan Ramblers play a, a bunch of like Uncle Dave Macon songs and stuff like that. And so there's like definitely right. old-timey influences in there. And, and just playing it straight sort of Scrug style or something like that just doesn't really fit. Or it, it kind of like 
morphs it into this box that it doesn't always it's not like my favorite sound so i like adding just some of those kind of two finger influences or mm -hmm. like some kind of claw hammer stuff if you can i think you know I, I just like the sound of that blended style a little bit yeah speaking of canadian banjo players that's something i really dig about nick hornbuckles playing yeah is that you can if you squint when you listen to it you could trick yourself into thinking it's three finger you could convince yourself it's claw hammer and yeah as it turns out it's neither because he does that two finger thing yeah but, yeah but it really does have have that ambiguity to it yeah and it's like it's this very syncopated feel to it that i love that's uh -huh. like it kind of it adds this just bounciness to the fiddle tunes that he's a great example of it also i mean i mean it's three finger but another canadian one is, is jason romero who kind of has this this kind of old-timey background and it really does it's just it's just a different sound mm-hmm uh, I already mentioned this a little bit, but now that we're talking about your stylistic approach, something I noticed last night, for example, is that you really have good ability to accurately mimic, say, a fiddle tune. You were playing with your musical partner, Ben Plotnik. Yeah. And he's writing these really cool fiddle tunes, but they require a lot of jumps oh, all over the, all over the fingerboard, <laughs> a lot of intricate moves, some often at like really fast speeds. Yeah. So, how do you do that? And um, yeah. well, how do, you, how do you do that? Man, how do you do that? Oh, man, I'm trying. You know, there's a funny thing. I'll give an example of like some things that had to just be uh, banjoified for me. Like, there's this one track we played on this latest record, and it starts with this thing that um, it's this riff on beats two, three, and four. So it's like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, two, three, four, two, three, four, and it's sort of a beat on the, or a uh, rest on the one. And that's how it starts, right? And eventually the, I, okay, I remember hearing that one. And so, I mean, forever I was just thinking, oh, it's a three note pattern. And so it, uh, you know, might as well just do it kind of like a forward roll. So I was just trying to play this thing with. And it just was, it was not feeling comfortable and like, Every time I was doing it, it was slowing down. And mm. then um, I, I realized, like, I just have to make this more banjo-y. And so instead of doing it, I did, like, a forward or a square roll, sorry, which would be, like, thumb, index, thumb, middle. Or, sorry, it would start on the, the middle. So it'd be th middle, thumb, index, thumb, middle, thumb, index, thumb. Okay. And if their first note is a rest...
You can still kind of continue on with the roll, and it's, it's all of a sudden it was like made this leap, and all of a sudden I could you know I could play these things a little more. You tricked your brain into yeah. <laughs> hearing it as a four note pattern, even yeah. though one of the notes isn't being played. Yeah, it was, I kind of had to like you know hold a fiddle in in front of a mirror and pretend it was a banjo or something, <laughs> you know, like. So there's a couple of things like that, but then also just you know a kind of melodic style. You just kind of have to work up an arrangement of it and just play mm-hmm. it so that it's it's there and. Um, it's not always there, as I found out last night. <laughs> right. I mean, a, a lot of times if I'm learning intricate fiddle tunes, I almost look at it as you need to learn it twice. You need to learn the notes, and then you need to learn where on the banjo is the best way for me to play these notes. And there could be like quite a few options. Yeah. And the more advanced you get, the more intuitive you get yeah. as to like just knowing that, yeah, this is going to be the best place oh, for that but totally. it seems like that might be a thing uh, that you've really um embraced yeah. i guess and i remember doing that early like um i was saying that i got the perpetual motion cd yeah. and so i remember like okay one of the first things i did this is before i could even play like cripple creek very well but i was like i'm gonna learn that bach partita that he plays which is the one in e major you know he does this thing it's like Yeah, that sort of thing. So I was like, "Oh, that you know, that sounds like a, a piece I can work up." <laughs> it's like totally naive thinking about it and uh, looking back at it. Um, but it, it's exactly that where it's kind of soul crushing because you'll have these phrases that are, are you're, you're working up, and like you can kind of get them, and they're like sort of there, but they just plateau at a certain point, and you have to realize that like you're just playing it the wrong way, and you have to you know the notes are there, but it's just not going to be sustainable. Um, so that, you know, you have to like relearn the whole phrase and retrain your brain how to play some of these melodic phrases. And it definitely, yeah, it can be, um, be a lot of hours. Yeah. So describe that. So when you, when you are working up one of these fiddle tunes and it might be really challenging, talk about like the standard that you hold yourself to in, in executing it cleanly. And maybe when, is there ever a time where maybe you actually have to like give up on the way that you're playing it and find something different to do. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, I mean in this, this like project in particular, like there was a couple of things that the fiddle trills that he does that I, I very much had to give up. Um, um, so there's one tune that he plays, which is, sort of roughly the melody but he has a trill on you know the, those very kind of things thing, yeah. very fiddly and um, I originally had worked up an arrangement with all of them in there and uh, you know we would get together and it just the like it's just not happening up to tempo and I'm there are obviously it's not saying that it's impossible in the banjo there's a million banjo players who can do that just I had to sort of realize that I was just not going to work for me and so uh-huh. maybe down the line I'll, I'll try and add them in but you know when you're, it's more, I think it's more important to be able to like play it at a, whatever arrangement you have at an ability that you're able to sort of, you know, focus on other things than rather than just those triplets. Like if that's yeah. going to be the forefront of you, or if like you're playing in a nervous setting and you're just worried about getting through those triplets, the rest of it is not going to be good. Like mm-hmm. you have to be able to think about like, oh, I want to be able to play this with like these dynamics and like maybe I can play this phrase a little more legato than this one. Like if you're, that's kind of like what I want to get to when I'm playing, performing this stuff, as opposed to like, 
I hope I'm going to pull this lift, this riff off. You know, like right. if, if you're dreading that the whole night, like there are, <laughs> I've played those shows where you decide you're going to try this riff and it's in like song seven of the set and the whole first set, you're just sweating, you know, and of yeah, course that, you're going to mess it up. Like, yeah, that's a, that's a big compromise yeah, to, totally. to be able to maybe, may, or maybe not still pull off one thing. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, another technique that I saw you using that I, that I really dug is you had this cool like fiddle backup pattern that I don't think I've heard anyone else play that specifically. Do you know what I'm talking about? And are you able to is demonstrate it? it and uh, that's it. Yeah, that, I mean, there's like a couple of people who do that. I, I took a couple lessons with um, a Greg List is his name, banjo player. My friend Josh Brand is going to be thrilled to hear you say that. Because okay. I, I, I was sitting with him and I pointed out, I'm like, I'm going to ask him about that. I really dig that. He's like, sounds kind of like what Greg List does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, when um, I took lessons off him, he uh, he does a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, I feel like he uses that in more of like a, I mean, same concept, but like, you know, yeah. less of the kind of straight ahead fiddle tune backup and more this, like, if you're going to do a halftime breakdown thing. And he, he like, I have a, a video of him uh, doing these, all these different examples of it. And it's just amazing to watch. Like, he has like that... You know, these triplets and these yeah. all these really amazing polyrhythms. Um, also, his banjo is so kind of it's dark and, and kind of dead, like there's no overtones on it. So you can kind of get this like the, almost like a really dry snare or something like that. Like yeah. it, it works so well for that stuff. Whereas if uh, kind of like the banjo setup I have right now is more uh, like... Which is when sometimes you do those kind of things where you're trying to like blend the two with a different setup, then it's like it just sounds a little tinny or something. Um, so I, I can get away yeah, with play sometimes. Yeah, play through a pattern of it just so we can get a good like example. Yeah, so like this song, it's in um, C sharp minor. Um, and, uh, or sorry, am I playing this? In, I am playing this in B minor. Um, but, uh, it's usually in C sharp minor. And, uh, what I'm doing is basically is making like a power chord. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, your first finger on the fourth string is your root. And you kind of have this fifth above it, which root is five yeah, root. Exactly. Yeah. And you can do this, this, like the, the, the actual pattern is thumb. So it's thumb index and then a brush with the thumb. And that can be as muted as you want. Right. And you're actually, I think that's maybe the unique part of it that I haven't seen other people do is like you're actually brushing all three strings with that thumb. Yeah, because I had to okay. do that because Greg Liss has four fingers. So <laughs> he can do the, the two, he can do the digga, 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 and then the with the other two. Uh -huh. uh, whereas if you don't have. We should clarify that. He has four finger picks. Yes, 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 <laughs> exactly. I, ho I hope there's no banjo players who've already like chopped off their pinky in order to like to yeah, make gotta, it sound more like you, Greg List. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah. So I mean, that is, I guess, maybe something. But so it's thumb index, thumb index, brush index, or the more bluegrassy one is thumb index, brush index. So the, the fiddle tune is, uh, it is in C-sharp minor, right? Yeah. You can kind of throw like, the 
those kind of ideas, you know. It can be kind of a nice, like, a, you know, mandolin choppy sort of sound. Yeah. Do you use that in more general bluegrass settings, or was that something that you just really dug for your duo project? That was, I mean, yeah, it was, it was like... It's very naked, as we found out last night. You know, you're playing with a whole uh-huh. band, and then it's, like, stripped down to just banjo and fiddle, which is, in theory, kind of a nice change. But, like, if you're the people who have to, to be the banjo <laughs> and fiddle player, it can be kind of interrogating. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so, like, you know, I would do that in order to make it sound more like a full band mm-hmm. kind of thing. I think in a bluegrass band, if you have, like, a, a mandolin, it might get a little messy. But, you know, sometimes, right. actually, if, if the mandolin player drop or soloing and I'm trying to do a chop, sometimes they're, like... Like, sometimes, for whatever reason, certain songs don't, or, like, it'll respond better to that sort of thing. It's just a nice uh, additional tool to have. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. For, for when it might be, yeah. when it might be cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So, this is a bit of a curveball question, but this is the kind of investigative reporting we do here at, okay, at the Picky Fingers nice. podcast. With the Picky Fingers team. Yeah, so this this is from one of my confidential sources. <laughs> okay. I can't say who, but his name might sound like Roshua Jilko. <laughs> uh, he says that you're a very high-level pool player. So oh. <laughs> A, A, is this true? B, tell me about your billiards resume and have you done this competitively? And C, what influence does this have on your banjo playing? Okay, uh, just not admitting to anything, um, but I will say there is a huge correlation between learning pool and learning music in general. Like, there are so many similarities, it's crazy. Whoa, okay. Yeah, yeah. Tell me more. Um, this is why I suck so bad at pool. <laughs> <laughs> I... Um, I got into playing pool because there's a friend of mine, you may even know him, his name's Andrew Collins, he's a mandolin player. I don't and, know him personally, uh, but I'm aware of him. Yeah, 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 yeah he's, he's a great is, player. Yeah, the Andrew Collins trio, and he used to play in this band, uh, the Foggy Hogtown Boys, which were an amazing Toronto That's Blue Chris's, band. That's Chris's cool band. band, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And he, had, he was a recording engineer, and he had this pool table at his house. So I first started playing pool with him, and he was really into it. And I think he had a, a period in t- of his life where he was way more into it before and had to sort of like, you know, play music or actually, you know, do important <laughs> things. Um, so he put it down, but he got really back into it when he had the space of the studio. And he, so he taught me a lot about it. So right from the very get-go of just being kind of like interested in billiards, I had this guy who was really knowledgeable about it and could teach me a lot. Um, so I got quite into it and he was always asking me, he's like, do you want to come to these tournaments and stuff like that? And I was not good enough yet. Um, but I, you know, I, I got really hooked on it. It's just kind of like the banjo. And I started, there was a pool hall right around the corner from where I was living in Toronto. Okay. And I went and spent three hours every morning for like three or four years, just every Whoa. morning practicing drills and doing that kind of thing. And I got really hooked on it and like had to like you know, regiment my days so that it was like, I got to cut off my pool practice so I can go practice banjo, you know? And like, it was, it was kind of funny. And then I started playing tournaments and I haven't won any big tournaments. I won some, you know, tournaments back in Toronto, but okay. uh, it was, it's actually, a, it's a good pool scene in Toronto. There's a lot of like really competitive players. And I think a lot of people think of like pool halls as being this sort of like dark and dingy CD place, but it was mostly yeah. like, you know, when you're playing a tournament, most people have earbuds on and they're like wearing, you know, sports wear and stuff like that. It's like not it's what kind of like expect. what you see at poker tournaments now. Everyone has their own fashion Con- thing that well, they're trying to do. It's that except for, you know, it's hard to describe. It's even like nerdier in a way. Like it's, you know, it's okay. less fashion oriented. I think I liked about it too compared to music was that it was like, you know, there's no 
subjectiveness or it's just like there's no like is this person is this like what i want to do or is this something i'm interested in? it's like you win or you lose and that's like right. all there is and if you lost it's because you did a and b and c and like that's where your things broke down yeah. but in terms of the similarity actually the funny thing is the way you practice it is like so if it's like improvising you know some there's some situations you get yourself in where you just have to kind of be creative and how to get yourself out of it some of it is just doing drills like sometimes you just set up a certain pattern and you do that until you can do it 10 times in a row perfectly wow you know there's a lot of stuff in like body alignment and all this kind of stuff that translates to how i practice music you know repetition repetition reps, yeah right just general concentration like to complete some of these drills like you have to really concentrate for a long period of time and mm. it's kind of like playing a gig like you, you can't just like you know turn off after three quarters of the gig like you still have to have the energy through the whole thing or else it's just not very good did they have any pool tables at the cloak and dagger they did oh it was tiny they, they couldn't have fit one in there okay yeah <laughs> that would have been dangerous and you didn't really move to nashville because you owe people money <laughs> or anything like that like are, are you a secret hustler <laughs> yeah, that got exactly I had to give away some banjos. No, no, I, I didn't move to Nashville because I had outstanding debts to pool players. But there's actually a great pool scene here too, and there's a little billiards hall just around the corner that I may have uh, started frequenting now that uh, I've got my my two doses. Oh yeah, cool. <laughs> back to back to normal. That's Except great. There's, there's more guns involved with this one. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. Just be careful. Yeah. So let's talk about your your banjos and your instruments. Yeah. Tell me about, I mean, so you, you're a claw hammer and a bluegrass player, so we have double the fun to talk All about right. here. So tell me what instruments you are using on stage and what you like about each of them. And yeah, give us give us the rundown. Um, so the old, maybe I'll start with the old time banjo. It It's made by made by Bill Rickard, who's an amazing banjo maker in right. just north of Toronto. He lives in Aurora, Ontario. And uh, this is one, a very early one of his, and he's a good friend of Chris Cool's, and Chris Cool introduced us, and uh, he was making these banjos, and, and he knew that I was kind of getting into it, and I, so I went up there when I was like 12 or 13 or something and got introduced to him, and he was going to make this banjo, which is a white lady, which is exactly what I wanted. It has this cherry uh, wood. It's a kind of reclaimed wood. The sort of story of it was that he was – he knew that I was gearing up to do the the clifftop competition that year, and I had like this piece that I was working on, uh, and he was like, okay, here's the deal. If you like, you know, if you come first in that competition, then like the banjo's on the house. Um, so I, it was the youth competition, so it wasn't like the, the all, you know, the all round, but I did win but the still, youth competition. Yeah, yeah oh. so so the banjo was on the house, which is amazing. Um, that is amazing. So yeah, I, it's uh, it's been the one that I've played ever since, and I love it, and it's, you know, it's, tweaked it a little bit. I actually got him to build me a new neck. It's got a radius fingerboard, which is kind of not saw that, that common yeah. for Climber. But uh, yeah, and I've been able to set it up in a way that I like it. Um, I actually kind of really have a really small tail piece, which is uh, kind of gives a little more overtone. So if it's really dark, it can be kind of nice. And you can also do this one trick, which is kind of fun. Yeah, just a no-not tail piece. Is that what you yeah, call exactly. those things? Yeah, okay. exactly. This is my new favorite trick where if you do harmonics on all the uh, strings in open C and then you bend behind the tailpiece, oh, okay. you get a little pedal steel line. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so that's a love great it. way to, you know, add some flashiness to your playing. But um, it's been, you know, this banjo I love every, ever, ever since I've had it. And um, yeah, I haven't really, I mean, like I've played other banjos and I like them, but it's just sort of this thing that you, you kind of get used to it and sort of got a story behind it and... 
So um, yeah, he's been a lot of super... sentimental value to it and everything too. Yeah, yeah. He's he's actually in the process of making me another one right now as we speak. That'll be a tuba phone, but it's going to be kind of similar to this. The same. It's a shorter neck scale and um, a couple of things that just make it sort of really easy to play. I find. Um, so cool. yeah, that's the Kleinheimer one. So actually, before you move on, yeah, uh, bluegrass listeners probably are not accustomed to having different choices for tone rings. So so you mentioned right. the white lady. If my if my memory is right, that's a that's a bit more of like a, a brighter, crisper kind of sound. Yeah. Exactly. Or what would you say? And then the tubaphone that you're having done is a, a kind of what it sounds like a more resonant sound. Would you agree with those or what Yeah. The funny thing is that like tubaphones I actually find a little bit often quieter, which is not what they're known for. In my experience, they're a little bit quieter, but they are they are like the sustain on them is a little longer mm. and the sort of dark end is a little sort of smoother. But yeah, you're totally right in that the white lady is kind of a little brighter, a little crisper. Okay. And again, I always find like, you know, banjos are a little bit like bicycles in that you can sort of like swap out parts and really... Oh, big time, You know, like yeah. as opposed to like a violin, which is obviously you can tune it and or like you can sort of tweak things so that it sounds as good as it possibly can but it's like not as you know interchangeable as a banjo it's gonna be what it is yeah yeah same yeah with a guitar or mandolin yeah exactly um so banjos you can sort of you know customize a little more uh so this one i've i've done a couple of things but really not a whole lot i just really like how it sounds but yeah it has this kind of crisp like those the one thing i do like is those left hand pull-offs really pop out hear every note if you're playing yeah. fiddle tune stuff you know sounds like wonderful really, it pops out have you by any chance played that I, I've lusted a little bit online about um, that resophonic banjo that he makes have you played one of those I have I did the uh, the demo for the the product on oh I website. probably watched it and <laughs> forgot okay yeah, yeah yeah it's really cool I actually we just I just made a record with the slow can ramblers and uh, I, we play a Tom Petty song where I'm playing slide banjo on it. And uh, I Ooh. really, I tried really hard to get my hands on one of those, but they're sold out. He's like, they're so popular. He can't uh, keep one in the shop. So Yeah, they, they look amazing. Yeah, yeah, they're really fun. If you ever get a chance to play one. Actually, the, so the new banjo he's building, not to go down too uh, too far down that road, is exactly the same neck they use on those banjos. Okay. And it's a really, really comfortable neck. Shorter scale, you said? It's a shorter scale. Like, and, like um, how short are we talking? Like 20? Is it like an A scale? I couldn't even. I see. I'm so bad with this stuff. Okay. I really like. I I play it and I like it or I don't. But I I don't really keep track of this stuff. I should know. I know that the long scale that he's the usually uses like 26 something, and I probably 26 and a quarter. Often they're like 25 and a half when they're right. like a so shorter it's scale. Yeah, three quarters of an inch shorter. Okay. Not, yeah. That sounds. Those numbers not huge, like but enough. Heard those numbers enough in to my make a difference. At some point. Yeah, right, they're numbers. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're numbers that I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've counted that high before. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's this banjo, and yes, those those resphonic banjos are amazing. Oh, I'd love to try one. Yeah, um, and then the bluegrass one. You know, the bluegrass one I played for a long time was one of these gold tone banjos, uh, and it was like, I can't remember the model, but it like it served me really well for a long time. Yeah. They're great banjos. I always suggest them for people who are like, you know, kind of getting just into the banjo. Like if you want to step up from the, the good times or whatever they, they those ones are called, which are yeah. like three or $400 banjos, it's like maybe more, it's maybe another, I don't know, three or 400 bucks, maybe a thousand bucks in total, yeah. but it's like, it's a really great banjo. Yeah. I work- I'm not sponsored by <laughs> gold tone, so. I, I worked at, elderly for quite a long time i sold right. tons of those things I yeah reckon, yeah so totally agree 
Yeah, great. So I played that forever, and then I there was a, a friend who's a banjo player in Ottawa, and uh, he was saying, you know, you, you should you should get a better better banjo. And and at the time, the like few weddings that we were playing with the slow cans wasn't really adding up to to a budget of like <laughs> a you know a, f- a five string master tone or anything like that. So I was. Um, kind of saying, you know, like, ah, maybe now is not the time. Maybe if I, you know, get a real job or something yeah. like that, I can, can do it. And then so eventually he sent me an email. He's like, I got this banjo and, you know, maybe you want to play it. And like, if you, you know, can't afford it right now, maybe pay it off over time, which was a really yeah. extremely generous of him. So he, he actually found this Calcroyd and it's a style 10. Um, style 10. Okay. Yeah. So it has this, you know, what they call the mother of toilet seat on the back. Of course. Um, which is the kind of characteristic. I don't really know the whole story behind those. I mean, I think I imagine it's sort of some of the cuts of wood that were not, you know, super desirable or like, you know, didn't look amazing or maybe had a knot in it. So they, they use them for these, but it's all the old sort of Gibson parts and stuff like that. Um, right. But again, I'm not really, uh, I, I'm not super knowledgeable about the banjo parts in the history. And I've, I've tried to do my best to sort of follow along with uh, the Gibson history, but um, I'd rather spend my time playing pool <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and banjos. So that, but that's not an original neck on it, obviously. Where, no. did that, where did that come from? Yeah. So it originally actually came with, there's one sitting over there that was made by Robin yeah. Smith and that, you know, is painted black and supposed to sort of fit this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, I, I, you know, same with my client hammer banjo. I really love very, deep and kind of wide neck, uh, mm-hmm. something, you know, people describe as like a baseball bat sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I, when it's too skinny, I like, I, you know, it sort of like disintegrates in your hand or like the pull-offs just feel, I don't know, they don't feel right. So I got, uh, I bought this neck off a friend of mine who's an amazing banjo player. Another shout out to another Canadian banjo player named Craig Korth. And, uh, oh, yeah, he, I've met Craig. Yeah, the nicest guy in the world. And he has a sort of a stockpile of cool stuff. So um, he had this neck that was sitting around. And I think it's a Bella copy, but it's made by Greg Rich. Okay. And so he, I just sort of put this one. Actually, Bill, Bill uh, Rickard put it on for me. And, um, yeah, I've been playing. It actually did darken up the instrument a little bit. Um, but I think I'm going through this constant struggle that all bluegrass bands are playing where it's like you like it dark for certain tunes and then the bluegrass tune comes along and you're like, ah, I wish it was brighter. <laughs> yeah. You know, so so I have it sort of set a little brightly now. That sort of, that punch kind of. Yeah. Uh, the tailpiece on that is really unique. I don't think I've seen that before. What is what is that? Yeah, this you know I usually have a, a standard like Presto tailpiece on here, but um, this is uh, the new Bill Rickard prototype uh, tailpiece that he's coming out with, and actually it's really cool. So there's a couple things about it, and I'll try and describe it. So it's it's got you know these standard hooks that you feed the uh, strings through normally just to sort of guide them through, and I think it adds a, a, the kind of correct breaking angle for the mm-hmm. strings behind the bridge. But the, the nice thing about it is that you can actually use those hooks uh, to add the loop end strings there. So if you want to actually lower the tension of your strings, which oh. I did for a while, it's really nice. Or if you want high gauge strings, the sound of high gauge strings, but lower tension, like it kind of adds this whole other thing you can play around with. Not that banjo players need more things to tinker with, but <laughs> but it's there. It's there if you want it. The other nice thing about it is that he's designed it so that the balls on where you normally, the loop end goes, uh, you can actually use ball end guitar strings if you're in a pinch or if you, okay. like actually on my Climber banjo, I often use just single guitar strings because I can't like buy a set that's heavy enough. So there's a couple of really cool things about it. It also sounds, I think it sounds great. Um, and I'm not sure if they're for sale on his website yet, but um, they're coming. But it's a Rickard tailpiece. Rickard tailpiece, yeah. Excellent. What about what about your other 
uh, pieces there, the bridge. And I noticed that's a Snuffy Smith head, which, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, are those not available anymore? They're not. I actually found this in a used banjo shop, and it was five bucks. And I was like, I'll take that one. I'll and take it, it right it now. Is new? No, no, it was used. Oh, okay. They had like a, a box of like used banjo heads. Interesting. Um, and they were like, you know, I think they would often, when they were selling used banjos, they would just like take it apart and put their standard whatever setup on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had a box of these ones and I saw this and I've, I've played them on a couple different banjos and they sound amazing. I love yeah. them. Yeah. They're I remember kind of perfect balance of like, you know. I've used one, but I almost forgot that they were a thing because I haven't seen them in, in quite some time. Yeah. I'm not really sure. Like I know um, Huber makes banjo heads that have like an extra layer of frosting or something right. like that but they're not like the five star super heavy ones yeah um so this is again somewhere in the sort of middle ground similar to that yeah a little bit. yeah i liked it you know i haven't really changed it in a while so maybe i can play around with other things but um i'm, I'm kind of happy with how it's sounding these days it was definitely last night when i was playing with the some of the fiddle tunes that were a little bit you know minor and, and darker i kind of wish you know i had more of this like lower bassiness okay. or something to it but you know whatever it is it is what it is <laughs> how about that bridge oh yeah the bridge is um it's again a rickard bridge uh it's sort of an experimental thing that he's doing so he drills a hole in the middle of the <laughs> yeah bridge. I, I saw that you know it's like um is there a purpose to that or that's just like his brand thing well i mean i think he was basing it roughly off you know like violin bridges have holes in it. it's sort of yeah. designed to direct the sound yeah. in different ways and so i think he was just kind of experimenting with that and okay it's just you know I, I tried a million out at a shop, and this one just sounded good, and it fit, yeah. so like I've just been using it. But I often, bridges are something, if, I mean, I don't really tinker with this instrument too much, but bridges are the one thing I'll do. Like, I swap out the bridge every, I don't know, couple of days just to try something new. Yeah, just they're fun. Seems to be like a, a an obsession or something, I don't know. I noticed last night you had your own, like, microphone set up, too, so, so take us through what you prefer for that and what... Your like live performance or right? Um, it sort of depends on the show that you're playing. Um, the w- I, you know my my live setup is based basically on what I've done with the Slocan Ramblers, and we had a couple of tours where we're opening up maybe a band that you know of. They're called the Last Revel, and uh, yeah, they're where do I know that? From? They're from Michigan, but they played in sort of like a, a rock venue type type concert tour. So okay. we were opening up for them for a whole tour, and it was like you know playing with. Sensitive condenser mics was just not going to mm-hmm. really be a good idea. So we, we got this set up. I, so I've been using this Felix preamp, which is great. And then, you know, when we play, and, it's, and then we kind of got, like, hooked on using these things because it just, like, makes your sound check so much faster. And they sound they sound great. I mean, a microphone, I, in my opinion, sounds better. There's, like, more air in between the instrument, and you can step yeah. away from it. But, you know, like, kind of a halfway point that we've been able to do is they have two inputs on them. So you can actually set up a microphone on a stand, and then you can also, like, plug a, something in. Like, I plug a little condenser gooseneck microphone in the banjo and that way you can have like a base level of of instrument volume or if like the sound tech needs a little bit more you can kind of give more of that but you can also step into a microphone yeah to so give just, a boost effect yeah and there's just like this something about the, like the air in between the microphone that you just don't get when the mm-hmm. clip-on microphone or the the pickup is is right there so something that it, yeah you kind of you can't really replicate so two microphones, that's interesting. I, I think usually people would, yeah, do the pickup and mic combo, but you're actually doing two, yeah. two actual microphones. Yeah, I mean, the pickup, I mean, there are some times. I have done, a, I did a tour 
where it was like super loud venues and stuff like that and that I actually had to swap out and use a pickup because yeah. it's just like it wasn't cutting it. You had to. Um, but you know, most of the time I can get away with a, a condenser microphone and like the occasional time you'll have to like mess around with the phase so that they're not out of phase. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, a lot of people were like warning me about that there was going to be phase issues and like that's not going to work and for the most part it's just been totally fine the whole time. Uh -huh. So I don't know. I'm not like advertising that this is the the best setup in the world but it's kind of been working for me and and what kind of mics are those? I just use, you know, I played around with a couple ones. The the mic on the stand is a Neumann KM184. Mm -hmm. um, I also really like, there's this cheaper mic called, uh, by AKG, the C535, which is like not that expensive. I don't think they make them anymore, so they might be getting more expensive to try and find them used, but it sounds great on the banjo. It's like really crispy and really, like if you want right. to play kind of bluegrass with like the, like it grabs the snappy pull-offs really well. Hmm. Um, so that that's kind of a fun microphone to use on a stand. But then, you know, I, I played with a DPA and those are great, but like I I just can't get as much volume as like a Audio-Technica thing or something like that. So I've used okay. mostly the Audio-Technica ones and I have occasionally, if the sound tech has one, they'll like give me even the, the Sure clip-on things and those are fine too but yeah mostly just the audio technica clip-on thing and you can install it right like directly in the banjo i've done before if you need it to be really loud i'll just you know open up the back and install the clip-on microphone inside the banjo and right. you can get it really loud yeah even in those rock clubs yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's cool yeah anything else we forgot to to cover about your your setup or or anything really i mean i think that i'm you know i'm sure there's yeah other banjo players on this podcast who would have more insight on what uh, setup is, is or what, how it's different or unique. So I'm, yes, I think we've covered it all to answer the question. Excellent. <laughs> What's your, do you have your own personal website and how do people find your music and your tour dates if those ever happen? Uh, yeah. So my personal website is frankevansmusic.ca or .com, sorry. It used to be .ca, but now I live in Nashville here. I had right. to change that. Um, Plus and you're in witness protection from yeah, the, the pool exactly. hall incident yeah, yeah. that yeah, That's we... That's right. <laughs> Good thing that the dot-com uh, was the last you know, bit of protection <laughs> I needed. And then also I play with the Slow Can Ramblers, which is www.slowcanramblers.com. And um, those, you know, those have my tour dates. I pretty much those are the only people I tour with. Um, mm -hmm. I've been playing a little bit with George Jackson as I've been down here. He's an amazing old-time fiddle player and yeah. bluegrass fiddle player. So um, he has a new record coming out that I'll, I'll be playing on. And just uh, hopefully when things open up, I'll have more to more to share. And listeners know George as childhood friend of B.B. Bownis from yeah. New Zealand, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so if, if that name sounds familiar, that's that's where we know it from. In so. fact, yeah, she's, she's on that record as well. So. Is she? Yeah, it was well. a high standard to be uh, to be following next to. <laughs> he obviously has very good tastes for, for his... <laughs> International band players. Exactly. <laughs> All right, well, thanks a bunch. For, oh, we should... Uh, I don't know if we ever specifically plugged the duo... Project. Sure, we, yeah. we, we referred to it a lot. But, right. Uh, yeah. Um, so I just put out a record with my uh, dear friend Ben Plotnick, and we recorded 11 tracks of original uh, banjo and fiddle duets. And um, uh -huh. this is sort of the concert we keep referring to last night as, um, as I, we did our CD release at the station in here in Nashville and had an amazing band with us and uh, played this, this stuff that was, uh, was, it was tricky, but it, we were having a good uh -huh. time with it. So if you want to check out some original banjo and fiddle music, you can go to Ben Plotnick's website. And I actually don't have that information on me right now. Okay. But if you just search Ben Plotnick, his website will come up. And I'll, uh, and I'll put a link in the sure, in the yeah. show notes Great. here. So yeah, they are very cool tunes. They should check it out. And the show was awesome. I appreciate you inviting me to that. Oh, I'm glad you showed up. Yeah, it was fun. It's All right. A, 
Well, thanks for having me and uh, great chatting with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Thanks everyone so much for listening. You heard a bunch of sound clips in this episode and in order they were Down in the Sugar Bush by the Slow Can Ramblers, The Farewell Medley by the Lonesome Ace String Band, Banjonique by Walt Koken, Just to Know by the Slow Can Ramblers, and then two tracks off of that new fiddle and banjo duo album with Ben Plotnick. Those were The Ballad of John Mack and River Bend Marshes. Thank you once again to Jordan Ream, today's Patreon supporter of the show. You can go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter yourself. And of course, any of you VIPs out there, don't forget the VIP lounge meet and greet uh, this upcoming September 26th at 1 p.m. That's a Sunday and that's 1 p.m. Eastern time for all of you other time zoners. Uh, I think that's going to do it for me. Contact the show, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com, and I'll see you all next time. Mm-hmm.